0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And the idea for today's episode actually came from fiction. Uh, it came from Jules Verne, to be precise. In his book, Mysterious Island, readers finally get the backstory on Captain Nemo. Uh, you may or may not know mysterious island came out after 20,000 leagues under the sea and uh Verne's enigmatic villain is explained in this as uh, a runaway royal of an Indian state named Prince Dakar and in the book Verne weaves real events from history in with his fiction in the book Dakar supported and fought in the Sepoy Rebellion and ended up losing everything because of it which catalyzed his running away from India forever and becoming Captain Nemo. But the Sepoy Rebellion was a very real event. It's
0: also part of the second Sherlock Holmes novel called The Sign of the Four. Yeah. Which in a weird confluence of events, I was listening to Sign of the Four on the way to Seneca Falls and back as you were stumbling across it in uh in Jules Verne. Simultaneously yeah. this happened.
1: Yeah. And I was like, that's a thing we should talk about. Uh, and it's one of those incidents that when you look it up, it has many different names. We are going to use Sepoy Rebellion. But uh, if you look at it from things written from the British point of view, it's usually called the Sepoy Mutiny or the Indian Mutiny. In India, it is called the First War of Independence. And the Sepoy Rebellion was really the result of many, many influences and stressors on the cultures of India that were living under British rule. At that point in time, the British East India Company was pretty much administrating in a lot of India's territory. And literally entire books could and have been written about it. But today we're going to break down the primary causes for the unrest that catalyzed this uprising. And we're going to talk about some of the battles, though not all of them. It was a particularly grisly series of engagements. But we just want to give you a general sense of this important moment in India's history. And to start that all off, we really have to lay some groundwork and context by talking about the British East India Company.
0: From 1757 to 1857, the British East India Company became the ruling entity in India. And by 1820, British interests were controlling most of the political and economic aspects of India, and even the country's culture was being heavily dominated by the imposition of British ideas.
1: And India, unlike many other British colonies, wasn't really seen as a place for British people to move to. It was definitely more of a situation where a relatively small number of people there were white men from the British Isles, but they were controlling the lives of massive numbers of Indian people, and they were basically just trying to, like, use all the resources there rather than, like, make it a place that would be a new home for, for the Brits. And the Indians uh, lost more and more of their power and way of life through a very deliberate process on the part of of British officials.
0: The East India Company, which was founded as the world's first limited liability company in 1600 under Queen Elizabeth I's reign, had been in India since 1608. By the 1800s, it had achieved a high level of power in the region through deals with Indian royalty. The East India Company had over time instituted agreements that enabled the company to keep military forces and British residents within each of the state's and in exchange, the company would support the royal families and their descendants.
1: Yeah, so for context, India at this point was not one unified country. It was a lot of different princely states or provinces, depending on, on what you're looking at. Some will call them states and some will call them provinces. But they had to negotiate individual deals with each of these territories to work out uh, getting their people in there and using the resources there. And these partnerships really opened the door for the British to have progressively greater influence in matters of Indian politics. So to be clear, the Indian princely states entered into these agreements under the premise that working with the EIC was going to grow and improve them. Like they really thought it would be pretty beneficial. The British East India Company was building infrastructure and providing administrative leadership, but it was also stacking the deck ever higher in its own favor, chipping away the power of the Indian people and improving its financial earnings at the same time.
0: In the late 1840s, James Andrew Brown Ramsey, Marquess and 10th Earl of Dalhousie, arrived in India. And under Lord Dalhousie, the reach of British interests in the country expanded significantly.
1: And I should make a point because this was my note that Trace just read. The Marquess title will come into play later. He wasn't Marquess when he arrived there, but he became that while he was working in India. So Lord Dalhousie came from a family that was distinguished for its long line of military and public servants, but it was not a particularly wealthy family. And some of his career ambition may have been driven by a desire to prove himself despite not being from a particularly moneyed lineage.
0: In 1837, at the age of 25, Dalhousie, who was then a newlywed, became a member of parliament. He served as president of the Board of Trade under Sir Robert Peel's Tory ministry and made a name for himself in that role as an efficient administrator. When the Whigs came to power after Peel's resignation, Dalhousie took the position of governor general of India. And Lord Dalhousie
1: traveled to India for his new job in 1848. And one of his first actions in his new role was to send British troops to settle an uprising in Multan that resulted in British annexation of the Punjab province in 1849. Although initially, he actually neglected to take any action. He was pretty hesitant. And this resulted, once it was all played out in Dalhousie, receiving that title of Marquess. But there were rumors that he had actually allowed the uprising to go on and reach a critical level before stepping in, because he had hoped to annex Punjab and get a little uh, accolade for himself all along.
0: The Second Burmese War also unfolded under Dalhousie's term as governor general of India. In that instance, the fighting was mercifully brief. It lasted less than a year and casualties were minimal. But the end result was another expansion of the British footprint as Rangoon and the surrounding Burmese province were all annexed. Rangoon developed into a massive and important port, so Britain not only took on greater landholding, but also ended up with a significant and important nexus of import-export business.
1: Yeah, so for the British East India Company, that was like a win-win-win. So he was, in this regard, really making some pretty big accomplishments for the British. And one of the non-military means that Lord Dalhousie instituted to seize more land and power for Britain was a system called the Doctrine of Lapse. And though much of India was already controlled either directly or indirectly by the British East India Company, there were still royal rulers in India's provinces.
0: And as we mentioned earlier, there had been agreements in place that put Britain in the power seat in these provinces. One of the customs that grew out of these ultimately unbalanced agreements was that if a ruler had no biological heir, they could ask the British government for permission to adopt one. This process of choosing a successor when an heir was not produced by birth was a long-standing practice in Indian princely states.
1: And prior to Dalhousie's time, the request to select an heir was largely a paperwork formality. But under his management of such matters, that really changed. Dalhousie realized that denying such requests and leaving states without heirs would make it much easier to appropriate those states as British territories. With a lapse in the line of succession, he could step right in and annex.
0: We're going to talk about the expansion of Britain's territory in India under this new doctrine. But first, we're going to pause, have a quick sponsor break.
1: So under the so-called doctrine of lapse, the British East India Company, acting on behalf of the British government, could also determine if an Indian ruler was competent in the role. And if the company deemed that to not be the case, the state could be seized to be governed by the British crown.
0: Several princely states were annexed under this policy and the Indian people were not happy about it. They saw the Doctrine of lapse as completely illegitimate and as merely a means for the British to overstep their role and gain even more power. So under
1: the Doctrine of lapse, the company was able to annex eight princely states when they were left with no heir. But when Dalhousie annexed the state of Awad in 1856, it was an occasion when the British East India Company had deemed the ruler, known as the Nawab, incapable of governing. And the Nawab had heirs, but based on the British deeming the ruler incompetent, the British East India Company moved in to take control of the state.
0: Of course, that made the annexation and transfer of power to the British a contentious situation. And in addition to taking power from a living ruler rather than absorbing a state without leadership, it also shifted the conditions for a significant number of people in a fairly unique way. So there
1: were Indian troops at this time serving in the British Army. Those men were called supoys. That was a word that had its roots in the Persian word for cavalrymen. And many of those men were from the state of Awad and were from the two highest castes. And the transition from being a high-ranking citizen of a princely state with land holdings to being a subject under British rule equal to all the others downgraded their positions of relative privilege, and it took away their land in the process, so that did not sit well. And the unrest that was already brewing because of British rule in India became even more pronounced, in what the citizens of Awadh felt was basically a hostile takeover. Dalhousie actually left India later in 1856, leaving a very tense situation in his wake.
0: In addition to the outright takeover of Awadh, the social structure of India had also been upended by the British. Many Brahmins, historically Hindu India's highest social caste, had lost portions of their wealth and their power as Britain and the company had placed their own people in prestigious positions and had taken away opportunities for most people to build their fortunes.
1: Furthermore, all the Westernization that Dalhousie and the company saw as a huge achievement was seen much less favorably by India's people. There were missionaries there then, trying to convert Hindus to Christianity, and it was rumored that forced conversions might be enacted. There was also talk that the company wanted to get rid of the caste system.
0: Additionally, Dalhousie had backed efforts in women's rights, including education for girls and legalizing remarriage for widows. And while these, we may see these as great strides through the modern lens, all of this was a huge shift in the culture of the Indian subcontinent, And they were changes that were being made by foreigners who had moved in and taken power. All of this really contributed to growing unrest.
1: And the Bengal army was a whole other story. The Bengal army in particular, uh, there were three armies that were run by the British East India Company, but the Bengal army had inherent prestige attached to it, as it had been in the service of Britain for some time and had really distinguished itself. And Sipoys who served in the Bengal army, they made up the vast majority of the soldiers, were very attached to the sense of honor that came with their service – But they also felt that they were in a position to make their own demands about how they ran things, both because of years of history and because they were in the higher tiers of the caste system. They required a large staff of camp followers that traveled with them, and they also wouldn't travel overseas. They would only go to places that they could march to. And while these stipulations were met for a time by Britain, the whole setup was really wearing thin by the mid-1800s.
0: Within the Sepoy ranks of the army, there were problems as well. The Hindu and Muslim soldiers serving the British were given lower pay than expected because Nepalese and Punjabi men were willing to serve for less money and without the requirements that the Bengal Sepoys made. This also meant that the caste system demands were less and less honored by the British Sepoys were passed over for promotion in favor of white soldiers. The Hindu soldiers, which made up the largest group, had been recruited from the two highest castes in their culture, so they felt incredibly insulted to then be treated as though they were lesser than the British soldiers.
1: Yeah, and as they were annexing all of these additional territories... If they had to battle there, they were no longer considered um, on foreign soil. So they would not get this additional pay that they would have normally gotten in a, a foreign engagement. Like they basically all of their their stuff was getting chipped away. But even though there were all of these multiple factors, I mean, there are cultural issues going on. There are some financial issues going on. Uh, there are even some fears that Westernization is going to be forced on them in certain ways. The actual cause of the Sepoy Rebellion is often reduced to one thing, which is a new rifle being issued to the troops serving Britain in India. And this is sometimes even used as a trivia point. You will literally see it on like kind of quizzes about do you know history that will say what single gun caused the Sepoy Rebellion?
0: This was the Enfield rifle that was issued and had lubricated cartridges. The ends of the cartridges had to be bitten off to load the rifle. And a rumor began to circulate that catalyzed a whole new level of discontent within the ranks. Word began to circulate that the cartridges were being lubricated with a combination of lard from both pigs and cows.
1: So Hinduism and Islam were the two most common religions in India then as they are now, and these made up a lot of the sepoy ranks. Islam forbids the consumption of pork, and Hinduism sees cows as sacred and eating beef is completely unacceptable. So the sepoys serving the British military of the East India Company were suddenly faced with the idea that they had just been handed weapons that were insulting to their religions.
0: It's actually unknown whether this information was correct and where the rumor began. But regardless, it was seen as just another step the British were taking that made it crystal clear that they had no regard for India's culture. Some Sepoys believed that the British had purposely tainted the cartridges and that it was absolutely not an oversight or an accident, instead part of a larger intention to destroy India's religions. And it seemed that the British did not really grasp just how problematic the situation was. Yeah, there are some
1: stories of, like, um, individual officers trying to, like, work with this problem and be like, okay, what if we change... The way that we do things so you don't have to bite the cartridge end off, you can tear it with your hand and so it won't be touching your mouth and it won't be quite so problematic. And And others suggest even that there were some officers that were like, well, maybe you guys could use a different weapon. But none of those sorts of efforts were made at anything other than a pretty small local level. Like they never filtered out to the larger army as like an actual uh, decision that was made across the board. So it, there were really way more people that were still dealing with this problem than than those that were trying to be worked with by their British officers. And so all of this led to the first incident of the Sepoy Rebellion, which took place on March 29th of 1857. And at that point, a 29-year-old Sepoy named Mongol Pandey, who was a Brahmin, attacked two British officers. He had joined the 6th Company of the 34th Bengal Native Infantry for what he saw as a path to a successful career. But this situation with the Enfields was simply too horrifying for him to continue his military ambitions.
0: The actual attack and how it played out is really difficult to know because accounts of this event just vary all over the place. Pondy may have tried to get several other men in the company to revolt with him, and he may have first refused to use the infield rifle as a less violent protest. But what we do know is that he made a solo attack on the two officers and may also have tried to turn the gun on himself.
1: Yeah, there are stories that he fired and that one of the shots missed the officer and hit his horse, and the turning of the The gun on himself is real awkward, like it sounds like he had to... There's literally an account I read that says he tried to pull the trigger with his toe because it was a rifle. He wasn't dealing with like a small pistol. So it's a little crazy and hard to piece together what really, really happened. But he was arrested for this attack. He was tried and found guilty, and his sentence was death by hanging. And initially, his execution was scheduled for April 18th, but the British wanted to handle the matter quickly in the hopes of avoiding a larger rebellion that might grow grow if Pondy was sitting in a cell for several weeks. So to speed things along, they moved his hanging up by 10 days to April 8th, which was very shortly after the verdict had taken place.
0: Up next, the events after the execution will unfold really quickly. But first, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors.
1: Later on in April, sepoys stationed at Meerut refused to use the Enfields. They didn't attack anyone, but they still faced a steep punishment for their insubordination. They were fettered and put in prison with a 10-year sentence. And this treatment stirred the rest of the already uneasy sepoys at Meerut.
0: A few weeks later, the uprising began in earnest when the Meerut sepoys shot the British officers in command of their company on May 10th. While some sepoys escorted the families of European officers from their quarters, some officers and their families were instead rounded up and massacred, and this included women and children.
1: The sepoys next marched to Delhi, one of the few places without any white troops, and they rallied the sepoys stationed there to their cause. Both Hindu and Muslim soldiers marched together, united in their frustration and anger.
0: Delhi was seized and the sepoys put eighty-one year old bahadur shah the second in power as emperor bahadur shah the second was the mughal emperor and had allowed the east india company to run delhi's tax collection in exchange for a pension The Sepoys were able to convince the elderly man to side with the rebellion with the goal being to take back independence from Great Britain and the East India Company. It's a matter of debate whether he truly signed the proclamation of his instatement as emperor of India of his own volition or whether he was coerced or even forced. The Sepoy rebellion had officially begun and it unfolded brutally over the next 13 months.
1: What was truly surprising to the British was how incredibly violent the sepoys were in their efforts. And this really created a desire for vengeance. Uh, There was a a lot of retaliatory darkness as well. And as the rebellion gained momentum, fighting broke out in more places, not just within the military. And in some places, the civilians got involved. Uh, For example, off-duty British officers, uh, if they were seen in the streets, would sometimes be attacked by civilian groups.
0: The British response played out in three stages. First, they fought at Delhi, Kampur, and Lucknow, all of which had been taken by insurgents throughout the sweltering summer heat. The siege of Delhi alone lasted from July into September. By the time the British had concluded their efforts to retake Delhi, it was completely destroyed. Bahadur Shah II was exiled and his two sons were killed.
1: And the Sipoys who had been captured by the British during the siege of Delhi were punished in truly horrific ways. The truly terrible acts that had been carried out by the Sipoys elicited an even more brutal and savage retaliation from the British. So Sipoys in some cases were just killed in massive numbers, like hundreds at a time, bayoneted, while others were shot out of cannons to kill them, uh, which is really troubling to think about, uh, British troops were really, really motivated by revenge to also kill Indian civilians.
0: Second came the winter effort at Lucknow in the end of 1857 in the early part of 1858. This took place in stages as a relatively small group of British forces was able to chip away at the larger sepoid numbers in the early autumn. In October, a much larger group arrived, and they first evacuated all women and children, then the remaining non-combatants. After pulling back to regroup, the British army advanced again in March and was able to retake the city.
1: And finally, uh, Sir Hugh Rosine led an effort to finally put down the remaining pockets of resistance in the second quarter of 1858. And some of those pockets were actually made up of men who had managed to flee Lucknow.
0: There were more battles and more atrocities of war throughout the rebellion, but they played out more or less the same as these. The sepoys took numerous cities and killed many British citizens, and then the British military would slowly advance and eventually retake them, more through practiced strategy than through an actual numerical advantage.
1: We do want to say, like, these were really, really horrific on both sides. Like, the fighting was just... So brutal and so inhumane in so many ways. But we also need to point out that there were, in each of these instances, sepoys that remained loyal to the British Army and actually fought against their fellows who had led the rebellion. And additionally, there were also men on both sides who spoke out against their fellow soldiers' treatment of women, children, and civilians, and the brutality that they were willing to employ.
0: On July 8, 1858, the rebellion was declared to be over. And by the time the fighting ended, both sides had suffered huge losses of both people and resources. The portions of the Indian subcontinent that were under the rule of the East India Company were in shambles. And while the Sepoy Rebellion was in and of itself a failure in its goal to wrest power from Britain, it is seen as the beginning of the end of British rule in India.
1: And most of this, we should mention, happened kind of in the northern part of India. Um, I was reading one account that said, like, the southern part was almost completely untouched, and it was pretty quiet, uh, just in terms of of reference for geography. But after the rebellion ended, Great Britain decided that the East India Company should no longer be serving as the authority in India, and the British government assumed direct control. There was also a significant amount of financial fallout from all of that fighting, and it took a while for the finances of the country to be reorganized.
0: The British forces in India were also reorganized. When the Sepoy revolt began, there had been far more Indian men in the British armies than there had been European men, but that ratio was shifted to make Sepoys the minority after the revolt. Additionally, while Britain continued to recruit men from India, they didn't do so in the areas that had revolted. The army was so carefully arranged to ensure diversity in units. The hope was that in mixing together a variety of ethnicities, there wouldn't be any one dominant group that could lead to an uprising again.
1: Britain also adopted a policy of actually consulting with representatives of India to avoid the cultural tone deafness that had led to the state of such frustration and unrest to begin with. But of course, it wasn't as though they were like, "Okay, we understand, we'll go now. They also continued to expand the British administration there.
0: Dalhousie's return home to Great Britain was soured once the rebellion began and news reached Europe. And while he had been lauded for his accomplishments for the company and the crown and his seven years of service as governor general, criticism was also leveled that his ambition had created unnecessary tension that in turn had catalyzed the rebellion.
1: There are plenty of of places where you will see a large proportion of the blame place squarely on Dalhousie for all of this. And he is recognized as uniting much of India into a more centralized entity rather than a scattering of separate states, but that as well as the transportation improvements that he made in India as part of his westernization and modernization effort is often eclipsed by his part in fueling the unrest that led to the 1857 rebellion. Dalhousie died in 1860, just four years after he left India. And in a thing that struck me as a little funny in terms of coincidence, because he had only daughters and no sons, his Marquisate ended with him.
0: Mangal Pandey is seen as a hero and freedom fighter in India, and his story has been adapted into books, as well as film, television, and stage productions. Given the magnitude of this event, and like how... Violent and devastating that it was. It does not surprise me at all that there is a lot of, um, like fictionalized versions of it from Indian yeah. literature and then also a lot of it in 19th century British literature too.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really was sort of like a, a flashpoint in terms of global events and particularly the relationship of course between Britain and India which carried on in additional ways we hadn't gotten to the point at this stage yet when uh Queen Victoria was declared Empress of India it's a troubling troubling situation but um, yeah so I mean that that relationship continued to evolve in some some unfortunate ways but just the same, this is still considered the beginning of the end of British rule, even though the British really took more power and for a little while, and then things eventually shifted back. Yeah, it's really, it's one of those things that I found a lot of things that wrote about it, and it's like some of those things were so horrific, like the men being shot out of cannons and stuff, that uh some histories tend to want to gloss through it, just because you can tell they don't want to get into gory details. They go, it was horrific, just know it was horrific. And here's what happened next, like instead of getting into the nuts and bolts of how truly unkind and brutal people could be. Do you want some slightly less heady and more fun listener mail?
0: I definitely do.
1: This one is about Carrie Nation. Uh, and this is from our listener, Madison, and it says, Hi, Tracy and Holly. I absolutely love listening to your podcast, and I've had the best time trawling through the archives. I was listening to the latest episode, Carrie A Nation Part 1, on the website, and I was struggling to figure out where I had seen the image of her before. And by the end of the episode, I remembered. I live in the inner west of Sydney, Australia, and there's a trendy wine bar here called the Temperance Society, and their logo is a picture of none other than Carrie A Nation. Whenever I suggest to friends or family who aren't local to our suburb that we go there for a drink, they think I'm making a terribly clever joke. I've sent you a link to their Facebook page where you can see their profile image is Carrie Nation herself. I was so chuffed to realize that one of my favorite podcasts had a tiny and quite abstract link to my little life in Sydney, Australia. Thanks for all the work you do. I spend many hours of my days listening to your intelligent and insightful discussions. Madison, thank you so much. I love that we have been like sort of finding out that Uh, many people have thumbed their noses at Carrie Nation's Mm -hmm. temperance desires and have opened bars in her name, not just the one in Boston. There are others. It kind of cracks me up. I, I feel bad. I'm sorry, Carrie Nation. I shouldn't feel bad or I shouldn't, um, I shouldn't laugh that the thing you fought for is now kind of turned into a way to make money and uh, sell booze, but I do it. Uh, (laughs) I also have a really cute postcard that we got from our listener, Leanne. And it is from the National Museum of Roller Skating, which I did not even know existed, but it is in Lincoln, Nebraska, and now it is on my list of museums I would love to go to because I have fond memories of roller skating in my basement as a child. Um, it says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I thought you might enjoy this lovely historical roller skating fashion. This museum is actually full of beautiful costumes and fascinating relics from the history of roller skating. Thank you so much for your podcasts. You make every day I listen to you a better day, and I have learned so much from you. Keep up the great work. And it's this beautiful picture of a woman in a little Victorian ensemble uh, <laughs> wearing her roller skates and looking very zazzy. And like always happens when we get cool pictures like this, I'm like, I want to make that outfit. Will it happen? I don't know. Uh, I haven't roller skated in a long time. I'd probably break my neck. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> if you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. So that's on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, Tumblr, if you would like to visit our parent site, which is HowStuffWorks, you can do that. Type in almost anything you're interested in in the search bar. You're going to get an assortment of fun content uh, to explore and learn from. You can also visit us at MistInHistory.com, where we have an archive of every episode of the show ever of all time, as well as show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together uh, and occasional other goodies. So we hope you come and visit us at MistInHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>